Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. As we continue on this journey through the book of Genesis, many of you are probably very familiar with Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold was a general in the Revolutionary War with England in the founding days of our country. And Benedict Arnold was a very good general. So good of a general that General George Washington gave him a post. General George Washington gave Benedict Arnold West Point, there along the Hudson River, a strategic outpost against the British forces. But you see... In those days of the Revolutionary War, Benedict Arnold began to question the validity of the war and whether the American troops would win. He had to sign what was called an Oath of Loyalty, where he pledged allegiance to the American nation. But then as time wound on, he began to have conversations with a man named John Andre. John Andre was a spy for the British intelligence. And as John Andre and Benedict Arnold began to communicate, they had these secret letters that went back and forth to each other. And the plot was simply this. Benedict Arnold would give up West Point to the British. And so what had happened was John Andre got captured by the British troops. They found the letters, they discovered the plot, and Benedict Arnold heard about the plot and he fled. He fled up the Hudson River. He got in a ship called the Vulture, never to be captured by General George Washington. Now the name, Benedict Arnold, has been equated in our culture with a traitor, a turncoat, a rebel, one who turned his back on his nation. And he was promised 30,000 pounds. It was really an issue of money. Benedict Arnold, high treason. Think about how things would have been different if the British had won the war. Now why do I draw your attention to Benedict Arnold in the issue of high treason, of being a traitor, of being a turncoat? Because as we come to chapter 3 this morning in the book of Genesis, we see high treason. We see Adam and Eve as rebels. Adam and Eve as traitors And they don't turn against their country for millions of dollars. They turn against their God for one piece of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A.W. Pink has said this about Genesis 3. He said, The third chapter of Genesis is one of the most important in all of the Word of God. What has often been said of Genesis as a whole is particularly true of this chapter. It is the seed plot of the Bible. Here are the foundations upon which rest many of the cardinal doctrines of the faith. What are the foundational doctrines of the faith that emerge from Genesis chapter 3? It is here that we discover the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. 
It is here that we learn about the evil schemes of the devil, the enemy of our souls. It is here that we understand man's utter powerlessness to walk in righteousness. It is here that we understand the devastating consequences of sin. It is here that we see why the world is in the shape that it's in. But it's also here in Genesis 3 that we see the gospel first announced in the Bible that God would put an end to sin. So here's the overarching idea for this morning. This message is called the fall part one, which means next week is the fall part two. We're going to get halfway through. But here's the theme for this morning. Adam and Eve's willful rebellion against God produced dire consequences that profoundly impact every single one of us today. Adam and Eve's willful rebellion against God produces dire consequences that profoundly affect every single one of us today. So let's read Genesis chapter 3, which I believe is probably one of the most foundational passages in the Bible. Let's look at verses 1 through 13 for this morning. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What I want us to do this morning is to see this narrative unfold in four major areas. Four movements. Four big-ticket items that this passage of Scripture lends us to understand. And here's the first issue this morning. I want us to simply explore the temptation. The temptation itself. Now, go back to the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. They were naked, and they're not ashamed. Now, there's more that meets the eye that's going on here. Yes, they were physically naked, but Moses, our author here of Genesis, is really using a play on words to set us up for what happens in chapter 3. They're not only naked physically, but spiritually, they're naked. They're vulnerable. 
They're exposed. They're an easy target for the serpent. Now you go into chapter 3 and look at verse 1. The serpent was more crafty. The serpent was more crafty. The serpent was shrewd. There's a play on words here. Because the word for crafty here and the word for naked back in verse 25 are really almost the same Hebrew word. It's a play on words. You can, you can say it like this in English. You can hear the same play on words in English. Adam and Eve were nude. The serpent was shrewd. He slithers into the garden on this unsuspecting couple. And we're somewhat caught off guard as chapter 3 starts. Because, I mean, chapter 2 is wonderful, isn't it? Chapter 2 is a beautiful chapter in the Bible. I mean, Adam is created and God, God breathes into his nostrils and God places him in the garden and the garden is lush and there's, there's onyx stone and there's gold and there's all these lush waters coming together and then God creates Adam a suitable helper and he fashions Eve and, the, and then Adam's eyes are open and he's excited because he sees Eve and so Adam and Eve have this wonderful marriage ceremony where God marries them and they are in this one flesh union and they're intimate and they have close fellowship and they're naked and they're not ashamed and everything is perfect. They're in an environment that God is getting glory and they're walking with God in the cool of the day and then all of a sudden in chapter 3, the serpent enters the garden. Now don't ask me how he got there. The Bible doesn't tell us how he got there. We know God allowed the serpent to get there but I believe it's this. Adam was not keeping watch. He should have driven the serpent out of the garden at first glance. He should have protected the garden from intruders. Now, a lot of people get wrapped up in this whole idea of Dr. Doolittle and a snake speaking. I'm not as concerned about trying to figure out the whole issue about the issue of the snake. We know it was a literal snake, but what's important about the literal snake is that it's Satan embodied. What's more important is what Satan says and who Satan is. The snake is none other than Satan himself, the enemy of our souls. 1 Peter chapter 5, 8-9, through 9, Peter says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now the word Satan means enemy adversary, opponent. That's what the word Satan means. The word devil means slanderer, accuser. He's also called that ancient dragon. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He's called the ancient serpent. He's called the red dragon. He's called the deceiver of the whole world. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Jesus calls him a murderer and a father of lies. Listen to what Jesus says in John eight forty four: You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the works of the devil. He's a deceiver. He's an enemy. He's a slanderer. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's a roaring lion. He's that ancient serpent. He is a murderer. And Paul says he's a blinder. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we find out the devil has schemes. He has tactics. He has methods. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the enemy. And so the enemy slithers into the garden. And we have the very first question mark in the Bible out of the mouth of the serpent. What's his ploy? What's his tactic? What's his scheme? What's his method? What's he doing? What's his temptation? There's four. Satan engages in four tactics here with Eve in this temptation. Here's the first tactic that Satan does. And it's the, it's the heartbeat of what Satan is. It's his nature. He questions God's authoritative word. What does he say? First question mark in the Bible. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, let's go back and read Genesis 2, 16-17 and see what God really said. That's not what God said. Look at Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What was God's command to Adam? You're free to eat of any tree. There's freedom. There's abundance. You are free. There's one prohibition. There's one tree. One tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what does Satan do? He twists God's word, and what does he say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. He's twisting God's word. He's questioning God's word. And notice what Satan calls God. Did God. What's been God's name as we've been going through Genesis 2? Lord God. The covenant name of God. Satan can't bring himself to pronounce God's covenant name because he hates God's covenant name. Did God actually say? He's very eloquent, isn't he? He sounds like a seasoned theologian. You know, did, did God re- really say that? Are you sure God said that? Did you hear God right? Are you sure you heard him? What did he do with Jesus in the wilderness? He quoted scripture to Jesus, but he twisted it. Satan knows scripture. Satan knows God's word, but he twists it, and he questions it, and he distorts it. So let me be very loud and clear this morning. Whenever you begin to question the word of God, 
Whenever you begin to deny the authority of Scripture, whenever you begin to question the validity of this word, whenever you begin to deny its inerrancy, whenever you begin to pick and choose which parts of this Scripture you want to believe, when you begin to stand above the Scripture as an authority, guess what? You are listening to the whisper of Satan, and you are going down the slope of being a false teacher and, and being an apostate and going into heresy. It's like a house of cards that comes tumbling down. Once you deny the authority of this word, everything else goes. You can give justification for any other belief system you want when you cut this out, the authority of God's word. We see the same ploy today. Is Satan doing this today? 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. We've got a plethora of demonic teaching in our world today, do we not? Many of you are familiar with J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is probably the greatest living theologian that we have. He's in his 80s. He's written Knowing God, a bunch of other books. He's a member, or used to be a member, of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church has come out for the ordination of homosexuals and for gay marriage, and J.I. Packer spoke up against that. He says, You're aban- we're abandoning the authority of Scripture. And the archbishop wanted to revoke his license and punish J.I. Packer. I mean, this is J.I. Packer. Now, what he did was he took about 40 other Anglican churches along with him. They left the Anglican church and they formed their own conservative alliance. Because he, if you listen to interviews, he said, our denomination has abandoned their view of Scripture. And once they've done that, they've become apostates. They've become heretical. I can't be in this anymore. And we see churches today, and we see denominations today, and we see Christians today that are listening to the serpentine whisper in their ears that says this, Did God really say? Did, did, did God really say that there's a sacred definition of marriage? I mean, I mean, really? Did God really say it's between one man and, and one woman? Did, did God really say that? Did, 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 did God really say that Jesus is the only way? Not one of many ways, but did God really say Jesus is the only way? Did God really say there's a literal hell? I mean, come on, a literal hell? Did, did, did God really say that sinners need to repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation? Did, did God really say it's against his, his rules to have premarital sex? Did, did, did God really say? Anytime you hear somebody say that, it's Satan's whisper. It's the whisper of the serpent. So the first ploy of the devil here is to get Eve to doubt the authority of God's word. And what do we know about the authority of God's word? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Are you falling for this today? Are you standing in judgment over this word as the authority or are you submitting under this word as the ultimate authority? Where's the authority? You know, when I was back in in my 20s, I used to travel a lot for a marketing company. This was before I was a youth pastor and I was in my mid-20s and and I have to fly from Colorado Springs to, to Phoenix almost every week. 
And one time we came back and it was in the middle of winter and it was one of those really scary landings where we're about ready to land and all of a sudden the plane goes and goes right back up because there was too much fog. And so we got in this circling pattern for like uh, for an hour and so eventually we had to go all the way, they had to go back up to Denver, land in DIA and then bust us down to Colorado Springs. But let's picture this. Let's just say that we had a really cocky pilot and the cocky pilot said, I can land. I can land in this fog. I've landed many times. And the air traffic controller says, no, you cannot land. I've got a vantage point that I can see. I can see all the other planes. I can look at the weather patterns. You cannot land. Now, the air traffic controller, if he's good, he's going to to give an authority to the pilot and say, do not land. Trust me. From my vantage point, I know what the truth is. Now, if the pilot is cocky and he goes against the warnings of his air traffic controller, he could endanger not only his life, but the entire plane. And so a lot of times what we try to do is we're cocky like that pilot say, I can do it. I've got the vantage point. I know what's going on. I don't need to listen to authority. I don't need to listen to someone outside of myself. I don't need to listen to God. I can do it myself. It's not up for discussion when it comes to God's word. And the very first thing that Eve does, or Satan does to Eve, is to, to question God's authority. Did God really say that? And then he, and then he basically twists God's word. Okay, what's the second ploy? He questions God's bountiful goodness. Basically questions the character of God. God must not be good. God must be holding you back. God does not want you to experience maximum pleasure and joy. God is putting shackles on you. Now, was God being stingy or mean or holding them back in the garden? What did God say? You are free to eat of every tree in the garden. Does that sound like it's stingy to you? I mean, it's a wonderful environment. Wonderful environment of lush beauty. God had brought them together in covenant marriage. They were naked. They weren't ashamed. They had perfect fellowship with God. Now, think about this. Isn't that God not being good? Think about the garden for a moment. If you're a man and a woman in the garden, is not this the best thing you've ever dealt with? Perfect food, never getting fat, eat as much as you want. Perfect sex, perfect communication, perfect relationship, perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God. I don't know what maximum pleasure is unless you have that type of perfect marriage. And so Satan comes along and says, God's holding you back. You're not getting to experience the goodness of God. Now, what God did was, God is not stingy, but God says, I want you to enjoy pleasure. I want you to enjoy myself as your creator, and I want you to enjoy each other as husbands and wives, but it's on my terms. It's with my boundaries. There's one tree you can't eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything else you can enjoy. So yes, God is holding them back in a sense that he's given them one prohibition, but ultimately, God's on their side. God wants them to enjoy each other and to enjoy him. But what Satan's saying is that God doesn't want you to have pleasure. God must not be good. God's holding you back. God's not being fair. Do you fall for this ploy today? Do you somehow think, well, God must be holding me back? God's holding me back. There's some type of pleasure out there. There's some type of joy and happiness out there. And if only I did what I wanted to do, God doesn't know what he's doing. God's holding me back. God must not be good. God must not know what's best for me. God is holding me back. That's the lie of Satan. So number one, questions God's authoritative word. Number two, questions God's goodness. But thirdly, he seduces them with pride 
to be like God. Notice what he says in verse 5. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. This is the epitome of pride. Not only will you be like God, but you will be God. What was Satan's sin before he was a serpent and entered the garden? Back in eternity past, we really don't know when that happened, but Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 14 tells us. I believe this is speaking about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How many times is Satan saying, I will, I will, I will. Ultimately, I want to be God. I want to be above God. And that's the same diabolical aspiration that he tempts Eve with. You will be like God. It's the root issue of pride you will have this newfound knowledge where you will be God-like. As a matter of fact, Eve, if you really eat that fruit, you'll be above God. You'll know, you'll know just like God. Listen to what some famous preachers have said about pride. John Stott has said this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. C.J. Mahaney has said this, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon God. Jonathan Edwards said this, Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. And of course, Charles Spurgeon, and only the way Spurgeon could say it, pride is a brainless thing, the maddest thing that can exist. Questions God's word. Questions God's goodness. Seduces them to be like God. But here's the fourth tactic. He tells them a bold-faced lie, that there are no dire consequences to sin. What does he say in verse 4? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Lie. Bold-faced lie. What did God say back up in Genesis 2, 17? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God said, you'll die if you eat of it. And Satan said, you cannot believe God. You won't die. There's no consequences. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and eat, eat it. One of the most effective ways the devil tempts us is to foolishly believe that there are no consequences to sin. There's no consequences. Just do it. Go for it. Shoot, aim, fire, and deal with the consequences later. Go blindly into sin and worry about the consequences later. As a matter of fact, there are no consequences. Click that mouse. Go ahead and click the mouse. Go ahead and flip your finger across the pornography. There's no consequences. Go ahead and spend 15 minutes of pleasure. Nobody's going to find out. Say that word. Stab that person in the back. Gossip. Get angry. Explode. Lie. Cheat. Cuss. Steal. Get out of control with your drinking or substance abuse. Do whatever feels good to you because really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. There are no consequences. Do what feels good to you because there are no consequences. 
Because really it's all about you and about your pleasure and about what brings you the most joy. So do it. That's the lie of Satan. What does Paul tell us in Galatians 6, 7 through 8? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will now from the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't be deceived. There are consequences to your sins. So the first thing we've seen this morning is the temptation itself. But the second thing I want us to see this morning is the transgression, the actual transgression. In verses 6 through 8, we see Adam and Eve transgress. And really what we find here are really three aspects of the fruit that, that lure Adam and Eve to sin. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was appetizing. It looked yummy. It looked like it would satisfy her. It looked good. It was pleasurable. Secondly, what does it say there in verse 6? It was a delight to the eyes. I mean, we don't know what this fruit was. Some people say it was an apple. We really don't know, but it must have been the most lush piece of fruit because it looked desirable. Her eyes were fixated on the, the, the beauty of that fruit. But then notice what else it says in verse 6. And it was to be desired to make one wise. She wanted that knowledge. Remember the knowledge of good and evil from that tree? God's not against them getting knowledge. Not, God's not against them getting wisdom. God's not against that. God just wants them to do it on his timetable and his way. And God says, you will be dependent upon me. You will walk with me. You will follow me. You will not march out on your own. You will not be autonomous. You will not be independent. You will learn to cling to me. And so they don't want to do that. They say, let's march out on our own. Let's be independent. Let's not listen to God. Let's get wise. It's very similar to what John tells us in 1 John. 1 John 2 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, and here, here's, here's where the connection comes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now this is Eve's downfall. She takes the bait. She's tempted. She believes the lie of the serpent. And what does she do? She eats the fruit. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, But I'm afraid that this, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The serpent deceived Eve. 2 Corinthians 11.14, later on down in that passage, And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, that was Eve's transgression. But nowhere in the scriptures is Eve ever held responsible for bringing sin into the world. Adam is. And you may be asking the question, where's Adam? What does the text say? Look at verse 7. I mean, the end of verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate... And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was with her. Houston, we have a problem. Because what is Adam not doing? Adam is not protecting his wife from the enemy. 
Adam is not stepping up his game and being a spiritual leader to protect his wife from the snake. Adam, the first moment the snake entered the garden, Adam should have driven the snake out. Adam should have been a buffer and protected his wife. He's being passive in his leadership. Adam is not, not protecting his wife. And Adam, Adam takes, Adam takes the fruit. Now let's just falsely assume for a moment that Adam was the first one to eat the fruit and Eve was second. It's not the way it happened. Let's just, for, for argument's sake, say what happened. What could Eve say to God? Well, well, well God, here's the, here's the issue. You created Adam first, and you made me as a helper suitable for him. And God, you made me to be submissive to my husband, so I'm only following my husband's lead by doing what he told me to do. So I'm just following my husband into sin. Now, she'd still be accountable, wouldn't she? She'd still sin, but she'd at least have a partial excuse, saying, I'm just following my husband into sin. But no, she's the one that eats first, and Adam does it willfully and rebelliously, knowing full well what he was doing. Eve is never blamed for bringing sin into the world. She was deceived, but Adam is the one that's blamed because Adam did it knowingly. Adam is the one that carries the weight on his shoulders. Adam's the primary culprit. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, there's some immediate consequences to their treason. There's some immediate consequences. Look what happens. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, this is man-made religion right here. I'm broken, I'm fractured, I'm guilty, and so I'm going to cover myself with fig leaves. I'm going to make something. These are plastic. These aren't even real. I'm going to fashion. I'm going to make. I'm going to um, somehow cleverly create something to cover my sin. I'm I'm going to fix the problem myself. I'm going to manufacture an answer. We also see guilt and shame. They're guilty. They're shameful. Before, when they were that one flesh couple in chapter two, they were naked They were intimate, they were vulnerable, they had perfect fellowship, there was no conflict, but now there's conflict, there's guilt, there's shame. There's also alienation. What are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding from God. And they're not walking with God. Notice in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Now, we don't know if Adam and Eve walked with God before, but we have a reference here of walking, God walking. Now, all throughout the scriptures, this whole idea of walking with God is this idea that that people in the scriptures had an intimate relationship with God. They walked with God. They had fellowship with God. But they're not walking with God now. What are they doing? They're hiding from God. They are hiding from God. They are guilty. They are shameful. And they are hiding. And this is man-made religion. We see it all over the place today. How do people deal with their guilt? How do people deal with their brokenness? How do people deal with their sin? How do people deal with their shame? People deep down in their hearts know that something's not right. They know they're sinners. They know the world's not right. They know their relationships aren't right. They know that we live in a fractured world, and instead of trusting and surrendering to Christ, they try to manufacture for themselves answers. This could come in the form of going to church. It can be in spiritualism. It can be in experimentation. All different ways to try to somehow handle the guilt, and what you end up doing is compounding the guilt even more when you try to deal with it yourself. 
So we've seen the temptation. We've seen the transgression. Now let's look at what I call the trial. It's almost like a courtroom scene here. Because God the Father comes and he calls them into the courtroom. Now, it's not as if God didn't know what happened. You, you may ask, why is God asking these questions? Does God not know? Where are you? It's like, not like God didn't know where Adam and Eve were. No, God is the judge, and he's calling Adam and Eve into the courtroom to answer the questions, to, to face the verdict. He does this as a way to heighten their own personal responsibility. And so, what results from, from, from sin? Look at verse, look at verse um, 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now again, it's not that God doesn't know where he is. It's a trial. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. What's the immediate result for Adam when he sins? Fear. Fear. Before it was security. It was comfort. It was fellowship in the presence of the Lord, but now it's fear. I was afraid. I hid myself because now I'm afraid of you, God. I'm afraid. And no one had to tell him he sinned. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree to which I commanded you not to eat? Adam knew he sinned. His conscience was screaming loudly. But here's the biggest issue that happens when sin comes in the world. The blame game. A shifting of accountability. Notice what happens when Adam's asked the question, who told you you were naked? Who's responsible for this? What does Adam say? God, the woman made me do it. She's the temptress. She's the one. Blame it all on her. It's her fault. And by the way, God, it's really your fault because you gave her to me. You're the one that married us. So God, it's her fault and it's your fault. It's definitely not my fault. And what does Eve say? The devil made me do it. She blames the devil. Neither one of them own up to their sin. They shift blame. They shift accountability. And that's what happens with sin, doesn't it? Sin says, I didn't do it. I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable. Don't blame me. It's somebody else's fault. Somebody else is to blame. It's not my fault. What does David tell us in Psalm 32? Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I acknowledge it. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. You see, here's the tragic irony. Here's the tragic irony of the fall. What did Adam and Eve so desperately want? To be independent, to be like God, to be free. That's what they wanted. I want to be free. I want to be independent. I want this wisdom. I want to be like God. That's what I want. And what happened when they sinned? They're in bondage now. They're not free. They're in bondage. They're guilty. They're shameful. They're alienated. They're hiding. They're fearful. And they're shifting the blame. Now that was a personal issue for Adam and Eve. They personally dealt with the effects of their own personal sin. They were alienated from each other, and they were alienated from God. They were naked. They were shameful. They were guilty. They were shifting blame personally. But there's another issue that's, that, that's very, very important for us to understand. And here's the final issue. We've seen the temptation. We've seen the transgression. We've seen the trial. Now let's just simply look at today. Today. 
How does this affect us today? You may say, well, that's an interesting story, Sean, of Adam and Eve and how they reap their own personal consequences. It's really shameful that they, they sinned and they had a fractured relationship and they couldn't walk with God in the cool of the day and they hid themselves and they fashioned fig leaves. That, that's really a sad story. But do you realize that what Adam and Eve impacts every single one of us today? Because you see, Adam was the head of the human race. And as the representative for the human race, what he did and what he failed to do impacts every single one of us today. So what I want you to do is turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Roman, and we'll be in this next week as well. Romans chapter 5 is Paul's commentary on Genesis chapter 3. And it behooves us to go to a New Testament book where a New Testament author sheds light in more detail in fuller color, if you will, in the, in, the progressive, uh, in the progress of redemptive history to show us the impact of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us what happened. Romans 5 tells us the universal impact of what happened. We've got the full counsel of God's word. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What came into the world because of Adam? Sin. What was the result of Adam's sin? Death. What does that do for us? It means every single one of us is a sinner and every single one of us will die. But not only that, go down to verse 12. I mean, I'm sorry, go down to verse 18. Go down to verse 18. Therefore, as one's trespass, that's Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What, what happened as a result of Adam's sin? Condemnation and being made sinners. Now what is condemnation? Condemnation means this. Every single person that is born, that's ever lived, is born under the just guilt and wrath and condemnation of a holy God because of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, he brought sin and death and condemnation and alienation and shame and guilt into the world, and every single one of us lives in that condition without Christ. Now, I debated how I was going to end this sermon this morning. I wanted to end it on really good news. But then I thought, sometimes in church, we need to just leave with the heaviness of the fall. We need to leave with the heaviness of understanding what are the, the cosmic implications of Genesis 3 on every single one of us that lives here. Every single one of us that lives and breathes on planet Earth. What we need to do is we need to have the full weight fall upon us about who Satan really is. Have you ever stopped and thought about just how clever Satan is and how he attacks every single one of us? Are we aware of that? We also need to understand the full weight of what it means to stand condemned under God the moment that we're born. The moment we come, the moment we come out of our mother's womb because here's the issue. In our culture, nobody ever wants to talk about the bad news. 
Nobody wants to stand up and say, there's a holy and just God. There's a God of wrath. There's a God who will condemn you to hell. There's a God that if you fail to live up to his standards, you will spend eternity apart from him. And it's because Adam brought sin into the world and you are alienated from this God. You're guilty before this God. You're condemned before this God. Nobody wants to say that, do they? But... How can you appreciate the sweetness of the gospel until you understand the sting of sin? The gospel doesn't make any sense to you if you don't realize how much of a sinner you truly are and how much you need salvation. If you haven't come to the end of your rope and said, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm depraved, I'm guilty, I'm condemned, I'm lost, I'm hellbound, I am sunk. If you don't come to that conclusion, you can't get saved. You've got to realize how sinful you and I really are so that we can look at the cross and just appreciate how much Jesus did for us there when he took our sin upon himself. The sweetness of the gospel only becomes sweet when we feel the sting of sin. Now next week we're going to understand the gospel because it's there in full color. We're going to get to the good news of the gospel. But for this morning, I want us just to understand sin and all, of its, and all of its implications. We are accountable before God. We are guilty before God. But what does Romans say? Through one man's act of treachery, Adam, there's another one man that came and gave us life, the second Adam, Jesus Jesus comes to bring life. Jesus comes to bring salvation. Jesus comes to bring grace. Jesus comes to bring forgiveness. Jesus comes to make all things new. And until you understand what Adam did, you will never understand what Jesus did. Until you understand that you're an Adam, you'll never understand what it means to be in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've felt the weight, I mean the weight of it, you felt the weight of the sin come crushing down upon you in this worship service this morning and you know you are helpless, the only thing you can do is cry out to mercy to God and guess what the Bible says. Here's the good news. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. There's salvation for you this morning. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do is to bow our heads and kind of in a sobering moment this morning, just I think we're meant to be sobered by Genesis 3. We're meant to feel it. We're meant to truly feel the impact of the guilt and the shame and the alienation and the blame and all of the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world. We're to feel it weighing heavy upon us so that all we can do is cry out to Jesus for grace. So if you're here this morning and you've never cried out to Jesus for salvation, would you do that this morning? Would you call out to him for salvation? Why do you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins? And if you're a Christian this morning, if you're here this morning and you claim the name of Christ, would you, on your knees and on your face, praise the holy God that he saved you out of that? He saved you out of depravity. He saved you out of condemnation. He saved you out of guilt. He saved you out of destruction. He has put your feet upon a rock. He's lifted you out. And now you are free, forever free in the love of Christ. Never to go back in a state of condemnation, but always to be in a state of salvation.
Spend some time alone before the Lord this morning. And submit ourselves before you this morning. We confess that we are helpless to save ourselves. We are hopeless to save ourselves. And if it were not for Jesus Christ coming in the flesh as the second Adam, crushing the head of the serpent, destroying the works of the devil, bearing God's full wrath on the cross and rising victoriously from the grave, we would have no salvation. And Father, my prayer this morning is if there's anybody in this room who knows down deep in their heart of hearts that they are guilty, that they are alienated, that they are separated from a holy God. Would they see the dire straits that they are in and would they call out for mercy to Jesus? Would they bend their knees to you, Jesus, in submission and surrender to you as Lord and Savior? Would today be their day of salvation? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and regenerate hearts that are dead? Would you come and open eyes that are blind? Would you come remove hearts of stone with hearts of flesh? Would you cause people to be born again this morning? And Father, for those of us that are believers, may we never lose our grip upon the sin that you've saved us out of. That you have lifted us out. You've taken us out of the miry pit and the muddy clay and you've put our feet upon a rock and put a new song in our mouths. A song that says Jesus is Lord. A song that says I'm forgiven. A song that says I'm free, I'm clean, I'm accepted, all because of Christ. May we never forget the impact of Adam and Eve on the entire world and the glorious answer to that through Jesus Christ. Would you do a work in our hearts this morning, God, that you may receive all of the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.